0: Jay, how many wolverines are there at this point?
1: Lowercase w, somewhere around 20,000. Capital W, there's just the one. Former X-23 Laura Kinney.
0: Well, there have to be at least two. I mean, there's old man Logan.
1: Nah, he's pulling a Jean Grey these days. No codename.
0: Okay, but what about Laura Kinney's clones? There were like half a dozen of them.
1: Yeah, but none of them ever went by wolverine.
0: Wow, so really just the one?
1: You could maybe make a case for Jonathan. Jonathan? Laura and Gabby's pet wolverine.
0: Wait, the current Wolverine and her tween clone have a pet who's also somehow Wolverine.
1: No, no, not Wolverine. A Wolverine.
0: How did they end up with a pet Wolverine? Oh,
1: Squirrel Girl brought him to a team-up as an overture of friendship. What?! I'm J. Rachel Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 111 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: Okay, so after our brief detour, we are back, of course, in Inferno.
1: Forever, for the rest of our lives.
0: Actually, I think we're almost done.
1: We are! This is the second-to-last Inferno episode. This is really exciting.
0: Although I'm kind of going to miss it, because, I mean, Inferno is such a culmination of the entire era that leads up to it, and there's some cool stuff coming up next, but for me this is like the end, well, in some ways literally, the end of the 80s, and I love the 80s. Does
1: that mean we can take a vacation?
0: No, no, we never get to leave. So, Excalibur, Inferno. What's kind of weird for me with this arc is that we're jumping into this major event like right after Excalibur starts. I mean, Excalibur has done five issues, two of which we're going to be covering today, before jumping into this giant, tangly crossover.
1: Yeah, man, Excalibur's involvement in Inferno has always felt super tacked on to me. You know, I remember thinking that when I first read these issues back in college, and it's definitely still the case for me now. But, I mean, they're in a weird position, and Claremont is in a weird position with regards to how he can and can't use them relative to the event. Because on one hand, for most of the team, you know, the team is based overseas, Inferno is a very local event, it's very geographically specific. But on the other hand, Rachel Summers is on Excalibur, and she is connected to literally every major player in Inferno, I guess except maybe for Iliana.
0: Yeah, I think what this is, is it's an Inferno tie-in, the same way a lot of the rest of the Marvel Universe was doing their own Inferno tie-ins. You know, Excalibur was just off Excaliburing, and they happened to be doing it, aside from the Rachel Summers connection, in a possessed Manhattan, which, by the way, I freaking love.
1: No, they're in Manhattan because of Inferno, because Rachel picks up on basically a psychic distress call from her alternate reality future little brother.
0: Yeah, as, as often happens. That happened to me last week. It was super weird.
1: Yeah, I would imagine.
0: I mean, it may not be central to the plot, to the resolution of Possessed Manhattan the way that, say, X-Men, X-Factor, New Mutants, and even X-Terminators were, but it's still so much fun. The issues we're going to be talking about today are great.
1: So I was thinking about why the Excalibur Inferno issues feel weird to me relative to the rest of the event. And it's not just relevance. It's part of it is that they feel very normal to me for the book. Inferno represents a pretty significant tonal shift for almost every series that's part of it. But in Excalibur, it's business as usual. I mean, this is a team for which the defining tone of the book is fantasy. It's the bizarre supernatural stuff. And it's being just taken and tossed into situations where the group is entirely out of their depth.
0: I completely agree. And I mean, I think especially for such a young series, that actually works in its favor. But the series may be young, but we still do have some stuff to tell you about in case you somehow missed the last episode. Or there was the fact that it was uh, many, many weeks ago. So previously on Excalibur.
1: Excalibur came together after the apparent death of the X-Men in Dallas during the Fall of the Mutants, and Rachel Summers' subsequent escape from the Mojoverse. Who's on the roster?
0: Okay, so we have Captain Britain. He is, of course, a longtime British superhero. He's got the usual strength, flight, and vulnerability stuff that so many do.
1: And he is, to what extent there is one, Excalibur's backstory. If it's a direct sequel to something, it's a direct sequel to Captain Britain's solo series.
0: We also have Megan.
1: Megan is a shape-shifting, on-again, off-again mutant. She's a powerful elemental who was raised in relative isolation and has recently come into her own as the gorgeous, nigh-omnipotent, shape-shifting lady friend of Captain Britain. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. We, of course, have Nightcrawler and Shadowcat from the X-Men. We know all about them. They're still mourning the deaths of the X-Men, who, as far as they know, are completely toast.
1: And wrapping up the former X-Men chunk of the lineup, we've got Phoenix, Rachel Summers, the alternate future daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey from the days of Future Past timeline, Earth 811, who bonded with the Phoenix Force after Dark Phoenix died. And these days, the team is living in a lighthouse on a tiny island which Captain Britain and Megan bought with stolen Inca gold from a doomed civilization during a time travel escapade.
0: Also in the backstory, Captain Britain has been reconnecting with his old girlfriend, Courtney Ross, who runs the bank that Excalibur's been working with.
1: I gotta throw in, like, the first three times I read through the notes, I just kept on reading, uh, reconnecting as retconning.
0: Is that something you can do? Just, like, retconning an old relationship so that it never happened? That would be really convenient. or,
1: Or so it was more serious, or, I mean, she did get a little retcon. They made her blonde. Oh, that's true, yeah.
0: So, yeah, anyway, Excalibur is still a new series, but it's really starting to find its voice very quickly. According to a blog that I've mentioned before called The Real Gentleman of Leisure, Excalibur can be best described as whimsy with a dash of the macabre, which I think is a great way of describing it.
1: Yeah, I think that sums it up really well. And again, I think that's part of why it ends up being such a natural fit for Inferno. So with that, let's jump into Excalibur number four and starting with what, in my personal and absolutely objectively correct opinion, is the greatest cover in the history of comic books.
0: It's pretty great. It doesn't get much more meta than this. Do you want to describe it?
1: So this cover is solid black. It's just got a single spotlight illuminating a janitor who is looking up to tell the audience. And normally Miles and I just read the dialogue. But for some reason, while I don't care if Captain Britain sounds American, I don't care if Megan sounds American. It is deeply important to me that this janitor be read as intended. So we are actually going to turn the mic over via the magic of technology to actual British person David Wynn for this bit of dialogue. Cover? You mean with huge, muscular, heroic males and beautifully erotic females engaging in gratuitous violence against sinister criminal superbrains and their ugly, stupid henchmen in exotic, moody, high-tech, subterranean bases in the eternal struggle to prevent the good being washed away in a tide of chaotic, evil mayhem? Sorry, mate. You'll have to look inside for that.
0: I do enjoy that, but I think my favorite Excalibur cover is another one that's kind of similar, which is the cover to, I want to say, 42, where Kitty Pride is telling you about all of the uh, content warnings for the stuff inside.
1: God, there are so many Excalibur covers that are so good, and using dialogue on covers is a trend that's been largely lost, I think, in the last decade and change, and... I see why, on one hand. On the other hand, when you see what someone like Alan Davis does with that, it's really just a damn shame that it's fallen so far out of style, because so many of those Excalibur covers are just solid gold.
0: They seriously are. But I suppose we should get to what is actually inside those covers, so let's dive well, into Well, we
1: know what's inside the covers. Huge, muscular, heroic males and beautifully erotic females engaging in gratuitous violence <laughs> yes, against yes, sin- yes, yes, sinister yes. criminal super brains and their ugly, stupid henchmen and exotic, moody high-tech, subterranean bases in the eternal struggle to prevent the good being washed away in a tide of chaotic Evil mayhem. We covered this.
0: Anyway, uh, let's go into a little bit more detail about exactly that. I really do love the first page here because it's a photograph of Courtney Ross and Captain Britain, both clearly in the old days. Like Captain Britain is in his Red Jammies era outfit here, just kissing in the sky, and her describing how she bought the entire roll of tickets for this charity event he was doing and just how happy and carefree they were back then. And we see her present sad face sort of wryly reflected in the photo. And it is a beautiful, striking start.
1: Courtney and Captain Britain are old flames, as I think we discussed. The details and shape of their relationship is something that sort of remains in a state of kind of limbo for a lot of Excalibur. But especially right now, because Captain Britain is also romantically linked to Megan, who's one of his teammates.
0: And something you mentioned that I thought was really awesome is how the book doesn't portray them exactly as rivals. Like, it's not that they're fighting over this man they both love. It's just that he is handling the situation very poorly and they don't necessarily have anything against each other.
1: Yeah, no, it's season one Korra and Asami.
0: It totally is. Yeah, which I think is such a great parallel. But I think what we should also talk about about Courtney Ross, in addition to her being Asami, is the other way she resembles Asami, which is that she is stylish as hell.
1: Right. Okay. so her outfits kind of blow my mind. Did people ever actually dress like this? I am deeply skeptical. It's like a
0: Victorian power suit or something.
1: Edwardian, actually, based on the sleeves.
0: Well, Edwardian, there you go. I think they probably did, but my main knowledge of British 80s fashion comes from, like, Adam Ant, so I might be a little skewed on that one. A
1: little bit. I, I, I do like the phrase Edwardian power suit, though.
0: Edwardian power suit. I would say, have you heard my new band, Edwardian power suit, but I don't even know what genre that would be. Oh,
1: uh, is Steamcore a genre?
0: I mean, I guess it is now. What's, what's
1: Professor Elemental? That.
0: Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll totally buy that. But yeah, anyway. you know, you'd
1: wear an Edwardian power suit with your fighting trousers. Oh, okay. See, um, it makes sense.
0: That perfectly makes sense. So anyway, Courtney Ross, now she's been described by a number of characters as this ice queen like character, like she's just this sort of untouchable, emotionless, cold person.
1: I mean, by ice queen, they basically seem to mean blonde woman who is usually busy running a business when they run into her. It's a weird descriptor to throw at her because she's super friendly. She's been super warm and welcoming to Excalibur. She's just usually at work when they start dropping superheroic nonsense on her.
0: It's true, yeah. But I think we see a lot more of that internal person who she actually is in these next couple of issues, because these, which, by the way, are not Inferno quite yet, we have a different story before that, she's kind of the point-of-view character, and she is such a good, fascinating, sympathetic one.
1: Unfortunately, as the point-of-view character in Excalibur, she is immediately thrust into maximal mayhem. She is kidnapped by our good Old, dear friends, the Crazy Gang.
0: Now, the Crazy Gang, they were around from old Caps in Britain. They were created by Mad Jim Jaspers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're basically a playing card slash Alice in Wonderland themed group of villains who just want to do crimes because that's what they're supposed to do. I
1: think they're stylistically their Wonderland characters. They Most of them don't correspond to specific ones.
0: Right, so we have the Jester, the Knave, the Executioner, the Red Queen, and Tweedledope. As they're fighting Courtney, as she is making a very good show of, you know, thwarting and escaping them, I love that they're just sort of bickering among themselves, like the Knave saying the Jester has to help the Red Queen since he's weak and won't hurt Courtney, the Jester objecting, and, like, in the meantime, Tweedledope, who is probably my favorite of the crazy gang, is just, like, uh, you know, attacking Courtney in his giant knife chariot pulled by an army of rats. He
1: looks so happy.
0: I'm just saying, like, if what you really want to do in life is have a giant knife chariot pulled by an army of rats and you do that, like, you have made it.
1: So, the crazy gang, when we've seen them previously, have been pretty tragic figures. I mean, Jim Jaspers created them, and he created them basically with the purpose of being his henchmen, and they don't really understand any other options. I mean, they went to the extent of placing a classified ad, looking for a mastermind who could help them out, who could direct them in a, in a previous issue, and... Here we learn that they have finally found their match. They have come home. They have found someone who is whimsically homicidal in the precise same ways that they were designed to support. And that is the one and only
0: Arcade. Because as Courtney escapes the crazy gang, because, again, she's immensely resourceful and in impressively good shape for a banker. My theory on that is she used to get kidnapped all the time, so she just got really good at running away from people and, like, jumping around and stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, I assume so.
0: But, yeah, she escapes into a nearby police car, which is driven by Arcade and Miss Lock. And, okay, I'm not the biggest Arcade fan in the world, but this is perfect.
1: Yeah, Arcade and Excalibur is kind of peak Arcade for me. We haven't talked about Arcade in a really long time. Should we maybe go over who he is real quick? Sure, let's
0: do like a two-sentence recap. Go for it.
1: Okay, Arcade is a supervillain assassin who runs the incredibly implausible business model of trapping each of his victims in a massively complicated and personally customized theme park called Murder World. Miss Locke is his sexy assistant.
0: And Arcade just enjoys his job so much. He's just gleeful about it. And he never even seems to exactly care if he wins. I mean, you know, he tries to because it's just all a game to him. And if he's thwarted, if the good guys or the victims or whatever get out, then, hey, at least they gave him a great day.
1: Arcade's definition of a great day is somewhat different from mine.
0: Well, There's a lot more blood and, like, you know, spinning blades involved in his. It's true.
1: I also really question the financial feasibility of his business plan. How much would he have to be paid per victim for murder world to even break even because he i mean the overhead has to be just stunning he's got extensive like perfect life model robot duplicates of all of the x-men he's got this incredibly physically complicated sprawlingly enormous setup and he fails a lot and when he fails the entire place gets trashed so he has to rebuild a ton
0: i'm thinking trust fund or maybe publishers clearing house win i don't know one of those
1: I don't know, man. Like, I don't feel like this is a sustainable business model.
0: Well, regardless, he has left his old murder world and has gone to a new one in England since, you know, Excalibur's in England, and so...
1: See? Again, it's just more and more overhead here.
0: Maybe it's like uh, how Uwe Ball makes those terrible video game movies, like there's some loophole in German tax law that lets him. Maybe there's a loophole in, like, British tax law that let him make a new murder world.
1: What we find out is that Arcade has kidnapped Courtney specifically to get at Captain Britain and the X-Men who are currently on Excalibur. He is doing this because those are folks who have previously thwarted him, and he dislikes being thwarted, although he respects the general tenets and the, you know, capacity to outwit murder world.
0: Yeah, although just because Courtney Ross is only bait, that doesn't mean he's not going to do his whole murder world shtick. So she wakes up in like this almost playboy bunny outfit bound to a robot chair, which is, you know, okay, so maybe should we talk a little bit about kind of gender and sexuality in the art of Excalibur? Because that's a thing.
1: Yeah, man, I feel like Excalibur at a lot of times is about a comics code away from just being a straight up sex farce.
0: It kind of is. Yeah. But at the same time with Alan Davis's art, like that kind of works for me because it's It's sort of a kind of good girl titillation that doesn't feel like it's over the line. It's just like, hey, this is kind of sexy, but also really silly and like not exploitative. So I feel okay about it.
1: Yeah, as sexploitation goes, it's definitely like the Looney Tunes school of sexploitation.
0: I'm imagining some really weird porn right now, dude. I'm just saying. Oh,
1: man, I 100 percent assure you not only that it is on the Internet, but that now it is going to be part of the search terms by which people find our site. I went through all of those last night. Like, the number of people who find our podcast because they're looking for incredibly specific X-Men porn is really impressive. Oh,
0: my favorite thing you told me about was the people who came to us while searching for Italian porno because that takes them to our discussion of Italian porno Batman. Yeah, yeah. I'm so pleased. No,
1: my favorite search term, though, by far and away, was how queer is (laughs) X-Men?
0: I feel like we're the perfect podcast for that question.
1: So queer listeners. X-Men is so queer. Anyway, um, (laughs) Right, Alan Davis. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cartoony, like, I mean, animaniac sexy is a really specific thing. But if, I kind of know what she means. Yeah, it's that very, very tongue-in-cheek wink-and-nod sexiness in service to slapstick, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And, like, that's how this stuff feels to me. That's how a lot of Excalibur feels to me.
0: Well, anyway, Courtney Ross, I mean, she may be, you know, strapped to a chair and about to get thrown into murder world, but she remains... I, The word spunky is often used derisively, but that's the best word I can think of for her. Because, like, Arcade asks what she thinks of the whole thing, and she replies,
1: What I think Arcade isn't printable. I love it. Is Courtney Ross aware of the fourth wall?
0: She may be aware she's in a comic. Maybe. It's hard to say. Excalibur would be the comic for it in this era.
1: Oh, my God. Imagine her and She-Hulk teaming up and, like, starting a corporate empire.
0: That would be incredible, and that should totally happen. They'd have to resurrect Courtney Ross because she died after a certain point, but, um... I think they
1: might be about to kill She-Hulk, too.
0: Oh, those jerks. Like,
1: I'm, I'm really worried about that well, in Civil War Well,
0: she'll be back if they do. She better be. But, regardless. So, yes, Arcade is, you know, talking about his plot. And what I really enjoy about this scene, in addition to the uh, many flashbacks to when he's fought these characters before on the screen behind him, is that we see just a random Murder World victim actually getting killed. Because that's the thing, like, you always wonder, how does Arcade make any money because the heroes always beat him? Well, apparently he also assassinates people who are not main characters of their own comics.
1: Two points I want to throw in here. The first is that the dude who is getting killed in Murder World right now looks so much like Nigel Frobisher, Courtney's jerk assistant, that I thought it was him for a really long time and was really confused when he came back.
0: Uh, that's fair. I think that's just like an Alan Davis visual archetype there.
1: Second... The scenes on the monitors are from the X-Men's previous clashes with Arcade and Captain Britain's. And there's a footnote, of course, you know, referring readers back to the issues they appear in. And... The footnote refers readers back to classic X-Men, not to uncanny X-Men, so specifically to the reprint volumes. Yeah,
0: which were coming out at the time, so I'm guessing they were doing that either A, to help sales of classic X-Men, or B, because those were way easier to come by than the originals. Yeah,
1: I assume it's just because they were in print, and that sort of leaves me really curious as to what the rules are as far as those footnotes, whether you refer to the collected edition or the issue... Whether it is dependent on what's in print, how much of it is about utility versus going, no, no, guys, there's really a precedent. Like, do people actually look stuff up based on those? I I mean, mean, we do,
0: but I did back when I was a kid when I could, if I could get a hold of the issue, I totally would. Okay, Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So Arcade quickly dumps Courtney into Murder World and this trap that she gets dumped into, which is actually the same one that the dude who got killed was dumped into, is a very strange one. She's having to deliver stand up comedy to a bunch of weird, like California raisin looking demons.
1: Murder World is is. An interesting place.
0: You remember that movie, The Magic Christian, that the whole premise of it was that if you had enough money, you could basically do anything. I kind of feel like that's arcade with Murder World.
1: That is exactly arcade with Murder World. You are. <laughs> that is actually an incredibly astute analogy.
0: Uh, that movie was starring Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr, and it was so weird. You should look it up if you can. It's a very strange way to spend two hours.
1: It is a fairly astonishing piece of cinema, yeah. Yeah, but
0: the thing with this is, Courtney just... Kills it. She is actually a hilarious stand-up comic, despite this Ice Queen persona that the comic keeps telling us that she has. But anyway, what I really enjoy about this is, as Arcade's, like, you know, pondering this whole trap he's set for Excalibur, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we see Miss Locke in the foreground of each panel starting to smile, and then stifling it just as Arcade looks at her, and then the smile comes back. And Arcade is just so, like, baffled and almost offended that Miss Locke is enjoying Courtney's humor so much.
1: And we only ever see the very beginnings, the very ends of her jokes. So, you know, it's been, we. I think the last time we did any kind of listener challenge was the noodle incident. And I'm going to stick these up in their own post. And I will say, if you feel like completing any of these jokes, I would love to see what you've got. And I'll put together a roundup of them on the blog.
0: <laughs> that was a strange and awesome contest. I like it.
1: I will say, keep it PG-13 and under. So, Arcade and Miss Locke's relationship is kind of great in this era, but one thing that's a consistent threat, and is actually the thing that ends up getting her killed much, much, much later, is that he cannot handle the idea of anything that humanizes her.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And here it's played for humor, later it's played very, very creepy. That's where we leave Courtney Ross for now, in Murder World, you know, attempting to continue living for long enough to be rescued.
1: While Courtney is navigating the horrors of Murder World, Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers are navigating an entirely different set of horrors, namely department stores.
0: Yeah, yeah. Kitty is helping Rachel shop for like, you know, some clothing that isn't short skirts and low cut things and tight leather and that sort of thing. And man, this power suit Rachel's in, she looks so unhappy in it. It's great.
1: It's a terrible power suit. We've seen her rock suits. Like, she just has to be able to do, like, the 80s soft butch thing. Yeah, yeah. But she decides to turn the tables and uses her phoenix powers to dress Kitty in this just unbelievably amazing dynasty dress with spiky epaulets. And I want to talk about fashion in Excalibur for a minute. Let's do. Because we've been talking about it a lot already, and in a lot of comics you see a lot of artists basically sort of drawing clothing on somewhat grudgingly onto characters. You don't really see characters with distinct senses of style very often. Alan Davis is just a phenomenal exception to that. But he's also someone whose work really predicts kind of the current focus on fashion in a lot of superhero comics and a lot of the superhero art community. Like there wasn't really anyone doing the kind of stuff that Alan Davis was doing at this time. You see a little bit of it in some of the New Mutants books, some of the more sort of teen focused stuff. But No one who takes it as far does as much with it, like to the point that I wonder how much of the scripting of the issue is basically based around. Let's see how many outfits Alan can draw in this one.
0: But the scene is important for two reasons, one of which is that when they try to pay, they notice that the money they got from an ATM all has pictures of the crazy gang on it. And two, there's so much flirtation going on here between Rachel and Kitty as they sort of like tease each other about their different types of fashion.
1: Dude, that's canon, man. That is is officially, as of episode 100, we know for sure that's a thing. And and yeah, going back through it with that lens and actually knowing the intent there, mostly it's just really validating because I kind of read all that stuff into it anyway before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, Kitty and Rachel had been on a team before in the X-Men, but I think it's here in Excalibur where we really start seeing that romantic, playful connection.
1: Yeah, that's something we're going to actually see with Kitty and another character who figures significantly into this in the next issue and then on much, much later in the series. But they're dealing with department stores. They're dealing with shopping. They're dealing with British currency suddenly getting much, much stranger. Kurt Wagner, nightcrawler, is dealing with a different set of challenges. He is training in an aerial gym Demonstrating that he can, in fact, rock a unitard about as well as he can rock a um, turtleneck, which is really well when he's drawn by Alan Davis. And he is swooping around and flirting wildly with Megan.
0: Who is in, like, the tiniest bikini ever. Yeah,
1: there is no way that thing would be staying on through that kind of acrobatics.
0: She's got elemental powers. I'm sure it's fine. Elemental swimsuit
1: powers? I love the way That would actually be a really useful superpower.
0: Under very limited circumstances.
1: Dude, unless you have ever been to the beach or attempted to engage in any kind of actual physical activity in something that literally ties on, you do not understand how useful a superpower this would be. It might not have that many crime-fighting connotations, but in terms of, like, practical life utility, it's up there.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. And, man, the Kurt Wagner that is written in this scene, and honestly in this whole era of Excalibur, is totally my favorite. And as he just, like, scoops Megan up, swashbuckler by nature, hero by profession. For someone raised in a circus, what better way to hone my acrobatic skills, especially when I can rescue a damsel in distress?
1: And there is a lot of chemistry between these two. They are playing and flirting and tickling and coming in for a near kiss. And as they do, Megan starts to change her coloring. She turns blue with yellow eyes, basically reflecting Kurt. And they almost kiss before breaking apart as they hear Brian calling in from outside. Nightcrawler Almost getting the girl is a running joke that goes from series to series to series.
0: Yeah, it totally is.
1: And it's something that's going to come back again and again, specifically with regards to Megan and Excalibur.
0: Right. And we'll definitely come back to that more just within this arc. But what they've been interrupted by is Kitty and Rachel getting back, having found this weird currency, and looked on the back where Courtney Ross is in a death trap on each denomination of currency.
1: Man, the British Mint is weird.
0: It really is, yeah. And so they quickly realize what's going on, and Brian is so pissed off because, as you may recall, Brian uh, first appeared with an American character when he teamed up with the Spider-Man to fight Arcade.
1: Yep, Brian is furious, which he expresses by flexing so hard that all of the buttons pop off his shirt.
0: So one of my favorite parts about the American Disney release of Studio Ghibli's Castle in the Sky is when these two guys are facing off in the street and uh, one kid just yells out a line that was not in the Japanese version, which is, hey, make your shirt explode. And then one of the guys makes his shirt explode by flexing. And it's really good.
1: So Captain Britain does that here. And of all of the characters, I feel like he ends up being the butt of the more physical humor than the rest of the team put together. On one hand, it's great because it's always funny. On the other hand, it does a lot to humanize him because Captain Britain at this point is kind of an asshole. He is the guy who has it all and, you know, shoves it in your face. He's the dude who is super physically powerful and super wealthy and super handsome and kind of an unpleasant person. And so having him also be the guy who takes 90% of Excalibur's falls. I think leaves me feeling more affectionate to him than I otherwise would by a fairly wide margin.
0: Excalibur looks at the bills more closely, sees that the same warehouse is printed on each one, and heads out there fully knowing it's a trap, but figuring, well, you know, we don't want to let our ex-girlfriend slash friend slash banker get killed by Arcade. And they go to check it out.
1: I mean, look, it's really hard finding someone who can do the proper paperwork for putting together a financial system for a superhero team. Right. Are you an LSC? Are you an S-Corp? Do those designations even exist in the UK?
0: Yeah, our small business is complicated enough. I can't even imagine once you work in, like, telekinesis.
1: Just the insurance considerations alone.
0: Oh, yeah. Our house hasn't even been blown up once. I mean, yet, I guess. Let's keep it that way. Yeah, listeners, please don't blow up our house.
1: I mean, we're renting. Like, we really can't afford this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have renter's insurance. Does that cover that? Hard that's, to say. That's
1: one of so many reasons that we're not superheroes.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. So many reasons. So they observed the crazy gang going about their business at this warehouse. And one thing that interested me was Phoenix telepathically scanning them and describing them as utterly basic role-directed thought patterns. And that makes sense because the crazy gang was basically just built to be criminal sidekicks. There's nothing else to them.
1: Yeah, no, they're NPCs. They walk in this specific pattern. They ask you how your day is going and whether you've visited the forest yet. They give you occasional battle tips. But yeah, they've got those specific roles. You know what else is cool about the warehouse? What's that? The warehouse was abandoned specifically. It was driven out of business by the sudden rise in import of low-cost Genosian steel.
0: That's a nice little touch, yeah, with a recent Genosian storyline, totally. Yeah,
1: although I assume that it'll come back into business now that Genosha is basically getting wrecked.
0: Well, you know, Genosha's fate rises and falls, but mostly it falls. And so Excalibur attacks the crazy gang, and they would be fine because, you know, they're Excalibur.
1: Except that Tweedledope, in addition to having a rat-pulled chariot also has a knack for technology and he's made a gadget that swaps minds just, you know, in his spare time.
0: And so the fight continues as different members of Excalibur and the Crazy Gang get their minds swapped into different bodies, and this is where this story gets amazing, because Alan Davis has such a good opportunity to draw different body language for these different minds in these different bodies. And so seeing, like, you know, the Jester just prance around in Nightcrawler's agile form, super happy about it, and seeing the Knave, like, grossed out by Megan's squishy, fleshy body and unable to control her shape-shifting is so good.
1: And the way Captain Britain trying to Captain Britain around in Tweedledope's body, and with that set of for me a lot of the appeal of mind swap stories and i'm thinking more in terms of perform stuff movies and tv is seeing how actors play each other's characters so i mean my go-to for this is always going to be the justice league episode the great brain robbery
0: oh where uh Luthor where Flash, and-, and lex
1: Luthor switch minds and so you hear you know each one's voice actor doing a spot-on impression of the other and it's absolutely delightful and doubly twisted by the fact that the guy who voices the flash also played lex Luthor on i think smallville for years right But in this case, that's entirely visual. That's entirely Davis in the art. And you can tell which characters are in which bodies just by their static body language in this comic. That is amazing. That is so good. Now, Phoenix
0: probably could have fixed all this because she's got the powers of a fiery bird god. But very soon into the fight, she's distracted by a psychic scream coming from her time alternate dimension displaced little brother Nathan.
1: Because Inferno ruins everything.
0: And so she ends up in the body of the Executioner, this big faceless cloaked robot thing with a scythe.
1: And partly as a result of the Executioner's nature and partly as a result of the ways that the Phoenix interacts with this body swap gun, she doesn't actually swap with the Executioner, she's just sort of merged with him.
0: Yeah, and so the crazy gang manages to capture most of Excalibur, leaving only Shadowcat free and Courtney still in peril.
1: So we're back with Courtney Ross, and she's in Murder World, and if there's anything that the intersection of Murder World and Excalibur justifies, it's a lot of costume changes.
0: Yeah, so she's like pushed down a slide as robot arms, you know, pull off the clothing she was wearing and drop her into an Alice in Wonderland dress. Again, that sort of good girl just off-camera titillation, kind of more of that. So Courtney has dropped into this kind of Alice in Wonderland, really colorful Alan Davis having so much fun setting in the middle of this big Excalibur slash crazy gang fight. It's just utter carnage. And most of the rest of this plot line is pure carnage constantly. It's just it's a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's great.
1: Well, and there's an extra chaos factor thrown in because Kitty, who's managed to sneak away from all of this and whose default form is currently intangible, is largely immune to Murder World. And she has been able to use that to sneak through short out Arcade's console, grab him and drag him into his own scenario.
0: Right, and not just short out Arcade's console, but she's used a program that she wrote with Doug Ramsey back when he was alive after the first time she was in a murder world to basically take the place over, which just sends it into even more chaos. Like, the guy who runs it is now, you know, a victim of it, and the rules don't apply as they did even before. It's just, it's wonderful.
1: Victim is a relative term, because Arcade really seems to be having the time of his life here, and we know this. We know that, like, his birthday present every year is that Miss Locke turns Murder World on him.
0: Right, and so he just arms himself with, like, bandoliers and guns and a centurion's helmet, and he's loving it. Kitty at one point does confront him just to kind of check on him and mock him, and I love his dialogue here. I love the way Claremont writes him. Rotten, stinking, puking little witch? No fair phasing, so I can't blast you to atoms!
1: It's so very Looney Tunes. Like, so, so cartoony. And Arcade is such a fun villain. Like, he's awful. And he's murdery. I don't know. He's really enjoyable.
0: (laughs) Right? And so he's gone through murder world as well and we see Courtney just you know getting rocketed in some cases literally there's a rocket from one amusement park part of murder world to the next as different characters pair off and fight.
1: Well randomly landing on rockets is a murder world standby. That is a thing that happens pretty much at least once per murder world story
0: and this place is basically just one big amusement park.
1: It's the worst amusement park. Actually, no, it's kind of the second worst amusement park. Ikea is the worst amusement park.
0: You know, if Murder World didn't involve all the murder, I would totally hang out there.
1: Yeah, no, it looks really fun in a horrible and perilous kind of way.
0: But where everyone eventually ends up is at this giant Cats Laughing concert. You remember Cats Laughing? That's the real-life band that sometimes works with Lila Shaney. Well, they're here for some reason.
1: They're a real-life and also multi-universal fictional band because they exist in Borderlands as well.
0: That's awesome. And the audience of this concert is a bunch of sentient cream pies, because Murder World, okay, and like Cats Laughing is singing a song about them, born never to be eaten, only thrown in someone's face, the cheapest of laughs, the most awful and final of fates. As, like, pies are getting slaughtered left and right in the melee. Like, it's so just dark and comical, and I love the scene.
1: Where does Arcade get, like, hundreds of sentient cream pies? Because these aren't robots.
0: I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're just, like, liquidy robots. Like, in Alien, they have the milk blood. It's kind of like that, except cream pie blood.
1: Like, who the hell is his supplier?
0: I don't know, but he's probably their only customer. And so, yeah, the fight continues. And, like, Kitty does manage to grab the weird body swap device from Captain Britain and Tweedledope's body and start, you know, unswapping people along with Courtney Ross, who's distracting everyone.
1: Captain Britain has managed to hack it to re-swap people back in the meantime. He has found that while he can't really fight as Tweedledope, he can still do his tech thing. And Captain Britain's a scientist. He's a scientist anyway, yeah. To an extent, he's in his, you know, home field here.
0: (laughs) Right. And so Courtney and Kitty make a great team, which we'll certainly see more of later, as it were.
1: And flirt fairly unambiguously.
0: They do. And speaking of subtext slash text, what Kitty ends up having to do to get Rachel out of this weird executioner brainwashed phase is to phase fully inside her so their minds overlap and that kind of frees her, because I guess that's how that thing works. That's just telepathy. You know, that's just science right there.
1: The good guys win and Arcade is let off by Inspector Di Thomas calling over his shoulder.
0: Tell the truth now, Excalibur. Admit it to yourselves, if not to me. Wasn't this fun?
1: So there's a little detail of this that makes Arcade much more sinister, potentially sinister, which is that he calls Shadowcat Shady Kitty at some point in this. Where have we heard that before?
0: Oh, we have heard Franklin Richards cutely call Kitty that in the X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries.
1: That's right. So if you are one of the conspiracy theorists looking for evidence towards Franklin Richards as the whimsical and vaguely malevolent god of the Marvel Universe... Here's a piece for you.
0: Well, there you go. So anyway, you know, they make their escape. Everyone's pretty much okay, except for that guy at the beginning and a lot of sentient pies, apparently. I guess.
1: And, you know, Cats Laughing ports off to do whatever Cats Laughing does. uh, I'm guessing they were
0: just robot versions of Cats Laughing.
1: So my impression is that they're real Cats Laughing because they seem sort of oddly detached from the entire Murder World event. Huh. That's a weird are And they're, they're drawn as the actual members. Like, they've got the same names and everything. <laughs> it's too. true.
0: But yes, to sort of decompress, uh, Captain Britain and Nightcrawler go off to a pub and share a pint, and Captain Britain talks to Nightcrawler about his romantic woes.
1: And Nightcrawler comes to the correct conclusion that Captain Britain is kind of a douche.
0: Yeah, because Captain Britain is talking about how he's really more into Courtney Ross, because unlike Megan, Courtney's her own woman. She's more independent. But it's like, dude, you have totally fostered that attitude of dependence within Megan from the moment you met her.
1: Nightcrawler and Captain Britain's friendship kind of fascinates me because like Captain Britain strikes me as you know the guy who you genuinely enjoy spending time with a lot of the time but who you mostly go out with because like he really needs someone to be there whose main job is just to tell him no you're being an asshole <laughs> like every so. five minutes like he's that guy and I want to talk about Nightcrawler relative to Megan and Captain Britain because Nightcrawler for me in early Excalibur is a pretty good object lesson in how to be friends with someone you have a crush on.
0: Yeah, he totally does not have that nice guy TM stereotype going on. I agree.
1: Right. Like, he and Megan have a lot of chemistry. He's got a thing for her. He thinks Captain Britain's an asshole. He thinks Captain Britain's an asshole primarily because Captain Britain is being an asshole to someone who Kurt likes, not, well, I'm just waiting for her to realize what an asshole he is and step in. Like, he's genuinely acting and speaking in the interest of Megan being in a good relationship, whether or not that ends up being with him.
0: So, gentlemen, take note of Kurt Wagner. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's totally worth emulating.
1: Speaking of those porn searches, there's definitely no name that comes up in them more often than Nightcrawler.
0: Nightcrawler is a sexy dude, and no more so than when he's drawn by Alan Davis.
1: Someone also searched for Quentin Quire pony, which is sort of... <laughs> like Quentin Quire as a pony? He's got super My Little Pony hair. I, I so guess so. I assume that's what they were looking for. But God, I, I really love going through our search terms. They are amazing.
0: Anyway, uh, the story isn't quite over yet because there is one more plot line, which is that Courtney Ross goes home after all this, you know, takes a shower and tries to get her head together. And
1: gets murdered! by a spectacular intersection of retcons and weird continuity this is satire 9 satire 9 is the alternate version of courtney ross who is the former dictator of a quasi-nazi science fiction dystopia world overthrown by captain uk in alternate universe captain britain and her formerly dead but snatched from a moment of time boyfriend and deposed Satire Nine was recently interrupted by a guy named Rupert, who's a UFO hunter, who was popped through to her dimension by Widget, a disembodied robot head capable of transporting people between dimensions, which will later turn out to be possessed by Kitty Pride from the future of Earth Eight Eleven.
0: But tangled continuity aside, this is harsh because Satire Nine A is terrifyingly. Like, she's just wearing that UFO hunter Rupert guy's UFO hunting equipment, like some kind of a trophy. And
1: I assumed that that was just because she basically came back through the way he came in. The way he explained it involved, you know, the colander on his head being relevant to the process. So she was just like, sure, whatever.
0: Well, regardless, we see Courtney Ross get killed here. And she's the character we've spent the last two issues, or if you're a Captain Britain fan, decades getting to know she's incredibly sympathetic. She's smart and savvy and has a good heart, but has trouble opening up to people. And like, she's just a shadow on the carpet at this point. And that's rough.
1: It's also the product of some of the weirder cognitive dissonance that's going to follow us through Excalibur, because from here on in, Satire Nine replacing Courtney Ross is going to be a character. But writers will regularly forget that she's actually Satire Nine and will just write her as Courtney Ross a lot of the time.
0: And yeah, this uh, plotline actually won't be, you know, directly even partially resolved for years after this. But in fact, that's the case. And so when Brian Braddock comes over to see Courtney, she's very, very seducy at him. And we, the readers, of course, see her little like not a swastika logo it's from it's her a little dimension little
1: stylized dagger.
0: Uh, on her thigh as she throws herself at him. And what could be like, you know, sexy if unethical, well, really more unethical than sexy, is just super, super creepy because this is the murderer of a character we really like getting on arguably our main character.
1: Well, and she had tried to basically hold him hostage as her consort ages ago.
0: Because in her dimension, she had her own version of Captain Britain, who was also the alternate version of Brian Braddock. It gets really tangly in the multiverse. Who
1: actually came through to Earth-616, tried to replace Captain Britain, and then attempted to rape his sister.
0: Right. It also gets really dark when it's written by Alan Moore.
1: Satire Nine's Earth is awful.
0: It truly is. But, regardless, what is also awful is Possessed Manhattan, which is where we go next, because now we are, in fact, on Inferno.
1: Alright, so this is Excalibur number 6, called Goblin Knight and... Damn, I love that cover. I'm just going to say that every issue and I feel a little silly about it, but they're all so good.
0: Right, this is the one with like the different demonified versions of the members of Excalibur on the cover. Just like with their
1: faces jammed together photo booth style like grinning a little bit too wide.
0: It's super creepy. But yeah, so you remember in the previous arc when Rachel got distracted by this like sort of psychic scream from her brother Nathan Christopher? Well, we get more of that, but much more intense this time because, you know, the really bad parts of Inferno are going on now. And she just bursts into the Phoenix Raptor and smashes through every single floor of the lighthouse before flying in the sky to go find him. And I love the way this is laid out because we get this big splash of an enormous phoenix raptor just dwarfing the lighthouse, and the little panels of each floor of the different members of Excalibur waking up as this flaming person bursts through with credits all around. Like, it's very cinematic. One of the reasons I think that's super rad is because probably a lot of readers would have been coming into Excalibur for the first time with this issue because of the Inferno tie-in. And so if they didn't really know anything about it, what a cool way to introduce all the characters.
1: They have a psychic link at this point, right?
0: Rachel and Nathan Christopher? Yeah, yeah. because when he was first born, she met up with them and, like, vowed to always protect him and stuff. Yeah,
1: I think it's around 201. It's right after the trial of Magneto that's established. The rest of Excalibur is kind of left in the wreckage of the lighthouse and, effectively, the wreckage of their lives because when a nigh-omnipotent telekinetic panics, untoward things tend to happen. And, you know, given her psychic connection to this and the centrality of X Factor, she takes their approach of just going straight the hell through walls.
0: That's right. Superheroes don't need doors. They make their own. And in fact, Nightcrawler comments on that. So, yeah, she flies through space, sort of calming down as she heads to the location of the psychic stream, which is in Manhattan. And when she gets there, of course, it's the inferno-possessed demonic city we've come to know and love for the last few episodes of our show.
1: And the person who she immediately identifies as her alternate universe mother is not. It's Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen, who, you know, to be fair, is a clone of her alternate universe mother, but...
0: Mom, it's me, Rachel.
1: Foolish girl, the Goblin Queen claims but one child is her own, and he isn't you. Oh, I got to do Maddie again.
0: <laughs> yes, last time.
1: I, ugh, oh, I'm gonna miss her so much.
0: And she throws Rachel into a building, which proceeds to start to devour her. She pulls herself free, despite the fact that there's this, like, demonic ecstasy thing going on, as sometimes happens in Claremont comics, before crashing into a bridal shop, and that's the last we see of her for a while.
1: Meanwhile, back at the lighthouse, her teammates are wide awake in the middle of the night and significantly dismayed at the fact that she has basically smashed through their entire home and left the kind of trail of destruction and disarray that you really only get... When a nigh-omnipotent telekinetic has a panic attack.
0: Yeah, so for instance, because Rachel was thinking about babies, when the rest of the team finds Kitty, she is dressed like a baby and in a tiny, like, bassinet thing and not pleased about it.
1: Well, that's uncomfortable for everyone.
0: It's a really weird scene. But Excalibur, of course, quickly picks up to go find her. Now, they don't have, like, the Blackbird or anything, so Megan and Captain Britain just fly the other two. And this is actually one of my favorite bits of humor in the entire series so far. As, like, Kitty's whispering something to Megan, and, when pressed, admits she has to pee. Yes, she went before they left, but that was four hours ago.
1: Right, I mean, it's a really long flight.
0: And Captain Britain, I love his idea. Well, couldn't you, er, phase?
1: Captain, that's disgusting.
0: (laughs) It's great. And so they land on a nearby, you know, naval ship where Kitty uses their horrifying bathroom. Or, well, maybe she does, she refuses to talk about it after. But what I want to talk about here is Megan.
1: So Megan is a shapeshifter. And what we've seen more and more is Megan starting to unconsciously shift to either reflect the people around her physically or to reflect what she feels are their expectations or desires.
0: And so as all the sailors are just saying, yum, 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 they're all saying yum. I guess that's just how Excalibur works.
1: Uh, Maybe as a byproduct of Inferno, Ilyana Rasputin's favorite term of admiration has suddenly caught on internationally.
0: Maybe, but Megan sort of turns into this ultra-glamorous, super-made-up, supermodel-looking woman without even realizing what she's doing, before Nightcrawler, like, scatters all the skeezy dudes by being scary.
1: And he is flying off with her again, and once again we see her turning blue. It's so easy to be around you, Kurt. You know who you are, inside and out. I don't. Changing is so natural, I sometimes wonder which shape is the real me. Is there a Megan at all, or only this... Poor, deluded mirror girl. And this is going to be her downfall when they get to New York, because as soon as they get into Inferno, into the possessed city, she starts to mirror that corruption.
0: And very quickly goes to find Nastier, who makes that change physical and turns her into the goblin princess.
1: With the sound effect, sklurch.
0: It's super gross. But yeah, so Nastier and Sim were the ones that, of course, turned Madeline Pryor into the goblin queen with her weird outfit. Honestly, in terms of stylishness, Megan totally wins the Demon Royalty Award.
1: Right, because Madeline is this, you know, the tattered, sexified horror. Megan is basically an homage to old Hammer horror films. Megan is basically now the princess of Universal Monsters. She's got, you know, tons of fishnets. She's got an amazing beehive. Her official title here is Goblin Princess. And yeah, I love evil Megan so much.
0: It's pretty great. And in the meantime, Nightcrawler jumps off the building to escape because, like, you know, his buddy has turned into an incarnation of evil. There are demons everywhere. And he does pretty well for a while, you know, bouncing from demon to demon, spinning around flagpoles on the way down but slips and smashes hard into the ground right next to a smiling plastic mannequin in a bridal store with Rachel Summers' face.
1: She has been turned into a mannequin effectively by an army of evil mannequins. We'll find out the details of that later. Unfortunately, this leaves her essentially powerless. She is a mannequin, and she has stumbled across by a character who I don't think we've actually seen since Exterminators.
0: Uh, He appears here and there in individual panels, but yeah, this is Crotus. This is Nastier's sort of right-hand demon, the sort of sniveling, power-hungry little blue dude, and this is easily my favorite appearance of Crotus in any comic. Part of that's that Alan Davis draws him really, like, I don't know, charmingly. I want to... Not give him a hug because he'd probably murder me, but you know, I want to think about giving him a hug.
1: I don't know. He wants hugs, or at least he wants, you know, matrimony because when he stumbles across the mannequin, Rachel Summers, he decides immediately that they're going to get hitched. Because what else do you do when you find a mannequin? Am I right?
0: Well, the the mannequin is dressed like a bride, and he does very quickly realize wait a minute. Mothter, or Mathter, or however he says Nastier's title that he creates, has been looking after this scrap of the phoenix in Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey. This person has the whole Phoenix Force. It's like he is so much more aware of the plot than a lot of the people in the main books are.
1: And if I marry her, I get access to that power because apparently New York state law covers this.
0: No, it's in there. Yeah, I have a friend who's a New York lawyer. It's, just, it's a maritime thing. It's kind of weird. So, yeah, he just picks up that. That's not
1: New York. doesn't Maritime that, yep, law is the sea.
0: That, nope, nope. That's how it works.
1: Miles, New York is not governed by maritime law and Wolverine is not actually your friend.
0: You don't know either of those things
1: i'm pretty solid on them you don't know me you're not my supervisor that is technically true
0: yeah i really enjoy this about crotus because you know he is just like he's a go-getter he's an entrepreneur like you know yes he's second in command but he's always seeking to better his position in life he's always seeking to move up the ranks and if that includes marrying a mannequin that includes a cosmic force inside of it then he's gonna do it by god as all this is going on, what are Captain Britain and Kitty up to?
1: All right, so Captain Britain and Kitty are saving citizens in the street. They are confronted by Megan as the goblin princess, who has set up her headquarters in a movie theater, which is a really megan appropriate setting, I gotta say. You know,
0: I didn't even think of that, but you're totally right.
1: Yeah, because so much of her her idealized version of what the world should be like and the way she interacts with it is so heavily informed by TV and movies. And she's got her HQ in this movie theater, and she uses it. She uses uh, possessed film reels to basically drag Captain Britain in.
0: And not just Captain Britain, Written because there's some random punks walking by that get pulled in as well. And one of them, I guess, is some kind of a, a film student or something, because he's talking about how, you know
1: Solipsistically speaking, the ontological structure of nature.
0: And this one demons like, geez, what some cinemas won't do to pull in an audience. Like, this is Excalibur. It's all about puns and people saying bizarre stuff that kind of fits the story, but only if it's a very cartoony story, it's perfect.
1: Well, an Excalibur is so matter-of-fact about dealing with Inferno, because again, for them, as contrasted with X-Factor, or X-Men, or the New Mutants, Inferno is kind of business as usual. Like, they've been dealing with warwolves, they've been dealing with weird interdimensional incursions, and strange reptile versions of themselves who show up in their basement. Excalibur just sort of shrugs and goes along with whatever's going on, because... You know, that's what you do when you're Excalibur.
0: Although this part is particularly weird even for them, because as Kitty phases into the theater to try to save Captain Britain and presumably these random other kids, she sees him dressed a little differently. He's basically a cross between, like, Rambo and Conan with a little bit of Freddy Krueger thrown in, and he's fully inhabiting that role. And in fact, we do see the title of this, quote, movie he's in, which is Fast Buck in Teen Bimbo War Gore Shocker 23.
1: I'm going to go ahead and say that that is actually pretty par for the course for Excalibur.
0: Do you think that was the movie that the kid and X-Factor were trying to go see the ship covered for them for?
1: It seems reasonably likely, yeah. Once we get into the cross-time caper, like, this is Tuesday.
0: Right. For me, it was Tuesday. And so, yeah, Kitty's like, I don't know what to do, but she finds herself falling into the role as well. She almost kills Captain Britain with her combat knife, because she's like a soldiery character too, before running away and finding herself in a horror movie. Now Captain Britain's this Freddy and Jason hybrid, like she's a cheerleader running away who knows that she should just fight back, but can't stop being scared.
1: The scenario she's in is really horror movie feeling, but it's also very much governed by nightmare logic. She's running through a hallway of lockers and she hears noise from one of them and opens it and finds Doug Ramsey hiding in it. And he tells her, no room in here, Shadow Cat. You'll have to hide in your own locker.
0: Which, you know, finding your dead friend in a locker with his own name on it, like, ugh.
1: She runs into a torture chamber where she finds the X-Men and New Mutants, or at least facsimiles of them, hanging and torn apart. She confronts the Goblin Princess and Brian and briefly and suddenly does something we've seen her do once before, which is manifest Magic's soul sword and soul armor.
0: Right. The last time that happened was when Magic lost her powers when the Beyonder took them from her. And actually, the time after that was when the Beyonder killed Ilyana. Now, we know what's going on in New Mutants at this point, which is that Ilyana has effectively died slash been erased from history. So that kind of makes sense, and it's super tragic, especially that Kitty doesn't realize what's happening.
1: Or she sort of does, but is so busy fighting for her own life that she doesn't really have time to process it.
0: Yeah, and after a couple more scene changes, she does manage to come back in in full soul armor with the full soul sword. And defeats Brian and Megan, who are inexplicably getting exhausted. And we'll find more out about what the reason for that is in the next couple issues.
1: Right. Basically, their powers are tied directly to the physical geography of England. When they're away, they get progressively weaker, or at least progressively less superpowered, or at least Brian does.
0: Yeah. And Kitty is no dummy, so she starts to realize what's probably going on here, what probably happens to Ilyana.
1: No, not her too. Wasn't Doug Ramsey and the X-Men dying enough? It isn't fair.
0: And it totally isn't fair. She's got a really good point. But in the meantime, someone else for whom life isn't fair is Kurt, who last we saw him was smashed on the ground outside of this weird bridal shop.
1: And is promptly eaten by a sentient sanitation van.
0: Okay, so the whole thing in Inferno with sentient vehicles, like, talking and yelling at each other is one of my favorites, and this one is probably my favorite of all of them, as he eats Kurt.
1: As he eats Kurt with an amazing phonetic accent. Like, I'm going to say, just, like, read this as written. Let's see what I can do here.
0: Denoiva people, crooking right out in the middle of the street. Ain't they got no civic pride or nothing? Writing graffiti all over, using sidewalks for turlets. You ask me, just burgundy would be better off if and we just got rid of everybody and left a big apple to us machines who appreciate it. More ours than theirs, anyway.
1: The belly of this thing is full of other people it's scooped up who see Kurt and immediately assume, not unfoundedly, that he's probably a demon and attack him.
0: But think about that for a minute. Like, you get eaten by this thing and there are all these other people inside. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's wrong with the city. You just know that you may be the last survivors in the world. And all of a sudden, there's another survivor. But no, it's another demon right in there with you in this safe space inside this monster. Like, that's creepy as hell if you think about it. safe
1: is a real relative term Well, exactly.
0: Like, the only safety that you could possibly find is not being killed any further.
1: Well, being potentially digested. It doesn't seem to
0: have any digestive fluids. It's just got a big, you know, cavity inside because it's a truck.
1: Now, the silver lining of this is that the fight that ensues gives the sanitation van indigestion, and it vomits up all of the people who it's eaten.
0: That sentence you just said? I'm just saying, that's a great sentence.
1: Thank you. I try. So Kurt decides to get to higher ground, and he heads up to the top of a church to take stock of the situation. He's talking to himself, and he discovers that while the inanimate objects who've been animated in Inferno are for the most part demonic, there are exceptions.
0: Because a gargoyle joins in his monologue. You're not like those others, the ones attacking the city.
1: Ah, they're demons. I'm a gargoyle.
0: And a most charming one.
1: They're from out of town, you see. Even if that was our nature, which it isn't. You don't do no harm where you live. Going?
0: I must. I'm needed.
1: I understand. I've seen a lot of you superheroes flash by my perch, but you're definitely one of the cutest.
0: And this is Excalibur. So much charm and humanity under the weird that itself is also the weird.
1: You know what I like? I like that the gargoyle is never in any way gendered. That's true,
0: yeah. Like the fact that it has a crush on Kurt, that's not necessarily like a man-woman thing. It's just a thing. But you know, if this was he's in, adorable. But if this was the nineties, I'm pretty sure the gargoyle would have had giant breasts. You ruined it. I'm just saying You ruined the moment. I'm just saying gargoyle tits, Jay. Gargoyle tits, which for the record is either the best or the worst pet name ever.
1: I'm gonna go with worst. Wait, pet name like something you affectionately call your partner, or pet name like what you name your goldfish? Because I would definitely name a goldfish gargoyle. Well, pets. no, no, I mean like
0: something you call your partner if they had great breasts and they're made of Stone. Okay, maybe worst.
1: How the hell are we married? How is this a thing?
0: Regardless, Kurt, you know, goes off to go hero and stumbles into, I mean, we're not going to, you know, dwell too much on these action scenes, but he stumbles into the comic shop Forbidden Planet, which we last saw, I believe, when the Impossible Man fought Warlock in that one New Mutants annual. And there's a big fight going on between mannequins who keep, you know, seeking out the flesh of the living to replace their own and the Starship Troopers, like from the Heinlein novel, because at this point, Inferno is just in full why the hell not mode.
1: Well, it's Excalibur. Everything is in full why the hell not mode. Again, we're coming out of two straight issues of Murder World here. The weird ante isn't actually any higher than it just was. That's true. We literally just saw cats laughing playing a show for a room full of murderous, sentient cream pies. And that wasn't Inferno. That was just happening under London.
0: (laughs) Again, for me, it was Tuesday. So what Nightcrawler does see amid all the carnage is one mannequin who's a little bit different and is just standing there, and that's a mannequin wearing Phoenix's outfit, wearing Rachel Summer's, like, red spandexy jumpsuit thing with all the spikes on it. And he actually comments as he picks up the mannequin that the spikes make her really hard to carry, which, yes, yes, they would.
1: Yes, I like that the basic purpose of her costume is to be as non-huggable as possible. Like, <laughs> I think that, I think that is a really—I identify with that goal. She's
0: like a little mulleted porcupine.
1: Aw, well, that's just cute.
0: Have you heard a little mulleted porcupine? They're adorable. Uh, And also have a mullet. Um,
1: You were saying gargoyle tits. uh,
0: Yes, well. (laughs) What Kurt does at this point is, with some assistance from the gargoyle who saves him from the carnage, like the gargoyle he made friends with, they take the spell book that they found that Crotus was carrying around, they take this other mannequin, and they find Crotus trying to marry the first mannequin in the ceremony being led by this sort of ghoulish zombie priest guy.
1: Sure, why not? So, I love um, this
0: scene. It's just so, like, it's just ghoulish. It's, it's just, very Beetlejuice. It really is. Like, in the same way that Beetlejuice, like, you're watching it as a kid and it's just, it's scary, but it's also really appealing and you want to spend more time with all the creepy stuff. It's, it's totally a- again,
1: that. the macabre whimsy.
0: And so they figure, all right, well, we don't have any time for any sort of a counter spell or to research what's going on. Let's just throw everything at everything and see what happens. Yeah, let's
1: just throw the mannequin dressed in Rachel's clothing at the mannequin that has her face and the spell book. Probably that'll fix it. Sure.
0: And there's a big phoenix flare, and in fact, it does. Rachel Summers is back. Huh. But what really sucks is that the gargoyle is not, because there was this big magical explosion, and a lot of inferno has been undone as this spell has exploded, and there's just the stony head of the gargoyle, which is shattered. Damn it. I know, right? And so Rachel's, you know, congratulating Kurt on having saved the day. And Kurt responds... It was a victory that had to be won, Phoenix, but the cost was equally dear.
1: Man, Nightcrawler never gets to hook up. Actually, that's not true. Nightcrawler gets, gets to hook up all the time, but just not so much in early Excalibur.
0: But for me, this is Kurt Wagner. I mean, seeing the way he handles his relationships with Megan and Brian on the one end of things, Seeing the way he has this like camaraderie and flirtation with his gargoyle, and genuinely mourns the gargoyle's passing when it dies, like Kurt is a man that just really cares about people and really wants to connect with them, and I respect that and I want to emulate that so much. This era of Kurt Wagner is easily by far my favorite Nightcrawler. This is the definitive Nightcrawler because of stuff like how he handles this gargoyle,
1: man. I really want Nightcrawler to have gargoyle friends. I feel like they exist at a really good intersection of characters who would be a good peer group in frame of reference to have for someone who is uncomfortable with his appearance relative to other humans sometimes. And also at a really good intersection of his interests, namely hanging out on rooftops and Catholicism.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Yes. All right. Marvel, make it happen. So, yeah, Inferno is basically over at this point. I do love how every Inferno story, like, has a thing that happens that claims to be what really ends Inferno, and Excalibur is no exception. The spell being broken seems to do that. Megan, of course, is horrified with all the stuff she did. Like, she enslaved Brian. She put him in an outfit that makes Alex Summer's Goblin Prince outfit look downright modest, and she did some horrible, horrible things.
1: Brian, you know, it's yeah, no, that wasn't actually you. It was the corruption of New York. Everyone's kind of got their own concerns out of this Kitty is wondering what was up with the soul sword. We're going to see her follow up on that in the next few issues. Crotus goes back to Nastia to hang out in a couple more tie-ins. And what actually brought them to New York is going to be, again, briefly resolved in the following issues, but for now just sort of hangs there, which is the Rachel and Nathan Christopher connection.
0: Yeah, in a way, this issue feels almost anticlimactic because all of the stuff that started Excalibur's interactions with Inferno, the climax doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. The climax is just them getting out of the chaos that they fall into.
1: Again, we're going to touch on all of that in the denouement. We're going to see Rachel find Nathan Christopher. We're going to see Kitty go back and get in a fight with the New Mutants about Doug and Ileana because Kitty's first response to grief is to punch things. But again, they're not really that tied to the Excalibur Inferno story, which is, again, I think part of why this as an Inferno tie-in, feels disconnected to me, because there's a very specific pretext for what they're doing, but then it has nothing to do with the actual story we see play out.
0: Right. But even so, these four issues, the two arcade issues and the two Inferno issues are just nonstop fun. Like, I was grinning like an idiot the entire time I was reading them and just laughing out loud here and there.
1: Now, speaking of the future of Excalibur, there's been a plot thread that we have not talked about that's been happening concurrent to the Inferno stuff through all of these issues that's back in the uk and moira mctaggart and callisto who was again on muir island after the mutant massacre and is rocking a really sweet coat and um, is moira's
0: bodyguard these days she's working
1: as moira's bodyguard are on a train headed to london to check out some anomalies around the phoenix and their train is thrown off course it goes through a very unusual tunnel one that we as the readers recognize the border of as the interdimensional gate that Widget had created, and the train that comes out the other side of the tunnel is very, very different.
0: And in fact, everyone's favorite curmudgeonly British inspector, Di Thomas, is pulled out of bed to check it out by a new group of people who make me so happy.
1: Brigadier Alison Stewart, Weird Happenings Organization. What? Who? Oi? We covered who, at some length, I think, in a cold open when we talked about amazing acronyms. But Who is the Weird Happenings organization, and they and Brigadier Stewart are very direct homage to Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, in Doctor Who, you have Brigadier Alistair Lethbridge Stewart, who is the head of UNIT, which, you know, similarly investigates weird stuff.
1: Now, there's also an Alistair Stewart in Excalibur. That is Allison's brother, in fact, and he is a scientist. He likewise works for Who, and he is called in to investigate the train that has come through, which is appears to be a parallel version of the one that left, except this train comes from a UK where the Nazis won World War Two.
0: Right, so it's all this Nazi imagery on a clearly British train, and inside, Moira McTaggart and Callisto are still there, but not as we know them.
1: These are like... 80s bondage Nazi, Moira McTaggart and Callisto.
0: I'm just saying for 80s bondage Nazis, they are damn stylish again, thanks to our buddy Alan Davis.
1: And these guys are going to be what propels the next major long-term storyline of Excalibur. But for now, you've got questions.
0: An anonymous listener asks, what are your thoughts about Mr. Sinister's outfit?
1: My thoughts about Mr. Sinister's outfit are that it is awesome, awesome. So Mr. Sinister's actually had a lot of different outfits over the years. There's the 80s one, his original one, that's sort of the strips of fabric and the tattered cape, which is cool, but very, very dated. It's very much of its era. My favorite Mr. Sinister outfit by a fairly wide margin is the one that he was wearing in his more recent appearances in Uncanny X-Men during Avengers vs. X-Men. This is the very, very slick, super posh Victorian gentleman's clothing in his classic red and black color scheme. And I like that for a number of reasons, the first of which is that it's just sharp as hell. But second of which is that I feel like it really fits the character because this is a dude who is egotistical enough to be actively working to basically remake the world in his own literal image. And I kind of feel like he would give zero fucks about anachronism. He'd be like, no, no, this is how we dress. (laughs) Right. All of us, because we're all me.
0: On Wednesdays, we are Mr. Sinister.
1: I want to go to that high school.
0: (laughs) So for me, I actually really dig the original one with the strips of fabric. That cape, it is 100% impractical, but 100% like impressive. He's basically evil peacocking, you know, the whole like having his. All
1: peacocks are evil. Have you ever met a peacock? They're terrible.
0: Well, most of them are geneticists. I'm just saying. Peacocks
1: are dicks.
0: That's true. But yeah, and like having his forehead gem sort of paralleled by his chest gem logo like that, what that is, is good branding. Basically, his whole outfit is designed to like just make an impression of smarm, of smugnitude, and I respect that
1: of glam smarm. So, uh, Jamie I Jess asks on Tumblr: Considering Inferno is the limbo of Amortis and Marcus, Sim and Magic, Ram and the Dire Wraiths, and the Space Phantoms the same place?
0: Okay, so officially, with the qualifier that this is from a guy who worked on the official handbook for the Marvel Universe, not canon from like an existing storyline. Right. Line. So this
1: is word of God, not text.
0: Right, and by God we mean writer. Those cover two separate locations. So there's the limbo that Ilyana grew up in, which is a hell dimension, you know, what with all the demons and fire and time travel? Time travel. And then there's also temporal limbo, which is both Immortice's and the Dire Wraith's version of limbo. And that's mostly defined by being timeless, and it may or may not also be the location of Chronopolis, which is Kang's home
1: base. Now, the exception to this is Earth X, where they are, in fact, the same place.
0: Right. So there you go.
1: We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a number of fictional characters. I believe that today I am turning things over to a man who truly loves his work, the one and only Arcade.
0: Wakey, wakey, kiddos! This might be the last day of your lives, but why can't it be the best? Listen, Jack Laser and Brian White, here are no Captain Britain, but hey, who is, am I right? But maybe you boys will surprise me, being so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. How do you feel about comedy, or space lasers, or biting pies, or buzzsaws? Sure, something'll probably kill you horribly, but if not, what a great story for the grandbabies.
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast Cast.
0: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check
1: out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more.
0: This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen. men
1: Next week, we finally wrap up Inferno with a look at some of the event's many, many, many tie-ins.
0: And writer Sam Humphreys joins us for post-game commentary.